The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. First Peter five thirteen. Peter writes, "She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings." We talked about this last week. This is uh, the church in Rome, and so does Mark, my son. This is John Mark, who Peter identifies as his son in the faith who's there with him in Rome, and this is the same Mark, who is the gospel author, and it is there that we'll be spending the next season of our church together in the gospel of Mark, so you can go there this morning, Mark chapter 1. And we will spend uh, probably close to two years together in this gospel looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Just to let you know why we're, we're going here next is one thing I want to make sure that we get as a church is, is a healthy diet of God's word. Um, it is the calling on pastors and teachers to, to preach and to teach the full counsel of God's word. And so we want to make sure that we're doing that. And we have spent the last few years together in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Peter. And I don't, do not want us to neglect the gospel narratives of Jesus' life. And so that's why we're going to find ourselves over the next couple of years, um, Lord willing, in the gospel of Mark. This morning we're going to be looking together. At verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What we will see this morning in these verses 
is that John the Baptist was the promised, preparing, proclaiming pointer. The promised, preparing, proclaiming pointer. Lord willing, we will work through these first eight verses. We may not, but we'll do our best. But before we get to these... um, I do think it's important to lay some groundwork, by the way, of an introduction to this gospel, specifically to to come to know both its date and its author and why those two things are significant. Most scholars date the writing of the gospel of Mark to between 45 and 65 A.D., It was written either right at the end of Peter's time in Rome or right after Peter's time in Rome. Now, this is significant because most scholars believe that the gospel of Mark was the first um, gospel written. Here's what that means, church. That before Mark penned this gospel, there had not been any written account of Jesus' life. This is the first, the first account, the first time the life and ministry of Jesus Christ had been put on paper, probably came from John Mark. And what he wrote in the gospel of Mark, probably served under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the source for Matthew and Luke's accounts. That's not to say that the gospel had not inspired Matthew and Luke, or that the Holy Spirit had not inspired Matthew and Luke. Um, He certainly did. But it does seem that Mark's account served as a source in in Matthew's writing of his gospel and Luke's writing of his gospel. If you were to break down Mark into sections, you would find 105 different sections within the gospel of Mark. And there you have two years worth of sermons. Of these 105 sections, 93 of these appear in the Gospel of Matthew, and 81 appear in Luke. There are only four sections of the Gospel of Mark that do not appear in either Matthew or Luke, only four. Mark has, in totality, 661 verses. It is the the shortest of the Gospels. It is a Gospel that moves uh, at a very quick pace. It doesn't include many of the longer discourses. They're shortened, and you will see repeatedly the word immediately used. 606 verses. Matthew has 1,068, Luke has 1,149. 
The reason why I, I tell you that is because Matthew reproduces 606 verses of Mark's 661. Sometimes he alters them slightly, but 51% of the time they are exact from the words of Mark. Luke reproduces 320 using 53% of Mark's actual words. Between the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, only 24 verses occur in Mark that are not in the other two synoptic Gospels. Now, why have I given you these numbers and why is that important, you may be thinking. The reason is because I believe that this gives great credibility to what Mark wrote. Because Mark was not an apostle. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. We do know some things about Mark. His name is John Mark, and he was raised in Jerusalem. He was the son of a wealthy woman named Mary. We do not know who her husband was, which means she probably was a widow. Mary's house served as the meeting place for the early church in Jerusalem. Most scholars speculate that it was at Mark's childhood house where Jesus held his last supper. If Mark was alive during the ministry of Jesus, and I believe he probably was, he would have been a very young boy. That means that he would have seen Jesus, um, but he is not following Jesus in all of these, these places that Jesus is going. And he, he's, he's, he doesn't have himself an eyewitness account of everything that Jesus says and does. But he, he probably did see Jesus. Some scholars believe that John Mark um, has written himself into the gospel. Now, the, the, this is not signed, right? He didn't say this is Mark writing this, but the, the constant tradition is Mark is the one that wrote it, and there's no reason to doubt that. Some believe he wrote himself into it. We don't know, but it's interesting to, to think about. I'll give you the two places. Both are found in Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 13, um, Jesus sends two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. Some believe that this is Mark writing himself into the gospel, that this person that had the, the bottle of water, we have man here, but that is not man in age, that is just masculine. It's a male. That Mark was the, this boy carrying... Um, this jar of water that led Jesus' disciple to his house, to the upper room there. Mark 14, 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
Scholars believe that this also could have been Mark. We don't know for sure, but it's interesting to think about. We do know that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas is the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. It was from this relationship that Mark was invited to accompany Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey after they had brought money to the Jerusalem church. So Paul gathers up money, brings it to Jerusalem, brings it to the church there, which is probably in the house of John Mark. And there, Paul and Barnabas depart on their first missionary journey, and Barnabas brings his his young cousin along with them, John Mark. During this first journey, Luke records in the book of Acts that Mark deserts them. Mark leaves them during this journey. This caused a pretty major negative impression on the Apostle Paul towards Mark. So much so that when Paul and Barnabas return back from their first missionary journey and get ready to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas again wants to bring Mark with them, and Paul does not. And there arose between them a sharp conflict, so much so that Paul went his way with Silas, and Barnabas went his way, and he took with him Mark. Um, and so there is, there's major tension between the Apostle Paul and this, this young man, Mark. And from there, Mark mostly drops out of our history. We don't know a lot about him from that point on. Tradition holds that he traveled to Alexandria and he founded the church there. But amazingly, Mark and Paul are not finished. And at some point, reconciliation between Paul and Mark takes place. And some 10 years later in Rome, Paul writes the church at Colossae in Colossians 4 verse 10, Aristarchus My fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And so now Mark and Paul have reconciled, and he is with Paul there in Rome, and he's being sent to Colossians and uh, to Colossae, and, and Paul's given instructions there. If he comes, welcome him, right? <laughs> Which makes you think, I mean, Paul might, might have had some negative things to say about him, but now we're reconciled, and if he comes, you welcome him. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul also writes, Luke alone is with me. This is at the very end of, of Paul's life. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. Now, from there, Mark joins the Apostle Peter. This is what we have recorded in 1 Peter chapter 5. And Peter calls him his son in the faith. And there is an obviously 
a close relationship between the two, between Peter and Mark. And this relationship answers for us the question of how Mark was able to write this firsthand account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Yes, Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is not in question and that is not a doubt. But the Holy Spirit also works through human instruments. And the Holy Spirit worked through this relationship between Mark and Peter. So much so that what we have most believe in the gospel of Mark is the gospel of Peter. What Mark records for us, yes, comes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also comes through the preaching of Peter. The the structure of the gospel of Mark follows exactly the structure of Peter's sermon in the book of Acts to Cornelius. It follows exactly. So what we have in the gospel of Mark is the first ever written account of Jesus' life. The first ever written account of Jesus' life means that it dates back the closest to his life. And it comes from one of the closest in his life, the Apostle Peter, as its source. Now, here's what sticks out to me in this story. Two things. One is the influence of raising our children as part of the life of the local church. That's what we see in Mark. The son of Mary who's opened her house to Jesus and his disciples and has welcomed believers into her home to begin the life of the first Christian church in the world there in her home. And Mark, her son, is raised up in the life of this church. And he's exposed to these things. He's exposed to godly men. He's exposed to godly women. He's exposed to the gospel. He's exposed to Jesus. He's exposed to these stories. Relationships are built. He's raised in the life of the church. And God uses that in his life to build these relationships so that eventually... God chooses Mark, inspires him to give us the first ever written account of Jesus' life. Now, Mary didn't know that was going to happen. But she raised her son in the life of the local church. And my my prayer is that that's what happens in in the lives of of my kids. That they don't get raised just coming to church. It's not just a thing that they do on Sunday. But they're raised in the life of the church. And they're exposed to the gospel at a young age and they're exposed to godly men and women and they see it lived out among us and it shapes and changes their lives. That's what happens in Mark. That's what happens in Mark. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you, mom and dad. Because I know it can be difficult to get up and get them ready and get them here and all that that takes 
on, on the way, and it can be hard and it can be difficult, but what God does in the hearts of children being raised in the church is seen in the, in the life of, of Mark. And then also just the influence of discipleship and reconciliation in Mark, that this is a man who was discipled, who was taken under the, the wing of his cousin Barnabas, taken on mission trip, uh, has a, experiences a broken relationship with, with Paul, but yet is reconciled with him and get to experience reconciliation and discipleship under, under Peter. And, and God uses these men in his life in great ways, in great ways. Church, we've, we've got to be a church that is committed to discipleship to committed to these kinds of relationships, iron sharpening iron together to see people developed in the gospel and used for the glory of God. That's what we see in Mark. So that is the introduction. And we will look quickly at the first eight verses together and see John the Baptist, the promised, preparing, proclaiming pointer. And Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is it. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark calls this the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It is good news announced to people. This is not good advice about how to live. But this is good news about a person. This is what follows. It is the gospel. And the gospel is a story. And it's a story that would be read to people. A story about a hero, not just any hero. You see, what we have in these pages is not just a memoir of Jesus as a great man. This is not a memoir of Jesus even as the greatest man who ever lived. What we have is a gospel it is meant to persuade its hearers and its readers that this Jesus is the Christ, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. Christ is his title, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who takes away the sins of the world. That's what that means. This is the good news of of Jesus the Christ, and he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Mark doesn't mince word. Mark doesn't speculate. Mark is clear. This man who we're about to meet, who you're about to see, who you're about to hear about, he is the Son of God, and this is his gospel the good news of the Christ who takes away the sin of the world. And how does this gospel start? It starts with a strange man named John. 
a man who was promised. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, there are some who will take this verse and will use it to argue the fallibility of the Bible. Because the first part of what Mark quotes is not from Isaiah. It's from Malachi. It's found in Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So when Mark writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he then quotes first Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So people take that and they say, well, see, Mark was wrong. That wasn't from Isaiah. That was from Malachi. And if he's wrong there, then he can be wrong everywhere else. So he can't take it at all. Well, the second quote comes from Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So why does Mark say Isaiah and not Malachi when he, he quotes this. I think that's pretty easily understood. Isaiah is the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. He is. It's the biggest, it's the longest. He is the preeminent prophet in the Old Testament. And it is from his prophecy. In Isaiah 43, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert in the desert, a highway for our God. It is, it is from that prophecy that Malachi is built upon and gives meaning to it. There is one who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. That's, that's Isaiah's prophecy. Before the Lord comes, there will be one crying in the wilderness, preparing a way. And then Malachi quotes and says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, the Lord of hosts. Malachi builds off of Isaiah. Malachi is understood through the prophet Isaiah. The point is, Isaiah prophesied it, Malachi built upon it. It's not a stretch to say that it was the prophet Isaiah who said this because he was the first to say it and Malachi built upon it. And then there was 400 years of silence. Malachi was the last. 400 years God has gone silence. Nothing from God until the last of the prophets appear. A man named John. 
And he was promised in the Old Testament to prepare the way. He was the promised preparer. That there would be one who would come before the Lord comes and his ministry would be one first of preparation. He will prepare the way. Crying out in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi, he will prepare a way. In the ancient days, before a king would take a journey, he would send out an envoy to make sure that the road that he would travel on would be both safe and suitable for travel. So before he would go, he would send out an envoy and they would travel the road. And in the low places, they would raise them up. And in the high places, they would lower them down. And where the road was crooked, they would straighten it up. So that as the king came through, it would be uh, a more accessible, easy, comfortable uh, uh, path for the king to take, right? We want to make sure everything is just right when the king comes. Making straight the path. Preparing the way. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. 400 years of silence. Yet just as was promised in Isaiah... John the Baptist comes on the scene and he has a ministry of preparation to prepare for the arrival of the king to make straight the path. And John appeared, verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was the promised, preparing, proclaimer. And he is in the wilderness preaching. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, we call him John the Baptist because his ministry was one of baptism. Not, he's not a Baptist like we're a Baptist, okay? We're a Baptist like he was a Baptist. He came first. And his ministry was one of preaching repentance and baptism. And it is entirely possible that John is the one who dealt, developed the practice of baptism. Not happening before him. He's proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sin and then taking people and dunking them into the river in the wilderness. And yes, dunking, not sprinkling, because the word means to submerge. That's what the word means. That's what John is doing. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. His message was one of repentance. A repentance that leads to forgiveness and then baptism. That is the order here. There are some who will take this and say, right here you see it, you're saved through baptism. That's what John did. You're, you're forgiven of your sin when you're baptized. That is not the order of what John is doing. That is not the order of what is happening. John is preaching a message of repentance. 
Repentance is a turn, a turn from your sin, a turn from your ways, and a turn to God and Him alone and His ways. That's repentance, right? That's what we saw this morning in David. His sins are before him. He's making this choice. I'm turning from my sin. I'm I'm renouncing my sin. And I'm turning to God. That's repentance. And when repentance happens, when real repentance happens, guess what takes place? Forgiveness. Repentance brings forgiveness. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness. It is impossible to receive forgiveness from God if you do not repent of your sins. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What are you to do? You are to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is the first step. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness. And when there is true and real repentance, when you really turn from your sin and you confess your sins to God and you turn from your sins and you renounce yourself and your own lordship in your life and you turn to God and Jesus Christ as the only Lord of your life, in that moment, forgiveness of God comes. And so once there is repentance and once there is forgiveness, there then follows baptism. And baptism is a visual sign of the message that is preached and the message that we believe. It is the visible sign of repentance and baptism. That you have repented of your sins, you have turned from your way of living, and you have died. That's the image of going into the water. And then by God's grace, you are brought and raised in newness of life, a new creation, forgiven of God and washed clean. The baptism waters do not wash away your sins. God's forgiveness does. The baptism is a picture, it's a proclamation of what's taken place in your heart as you've repented of your sins and God has forgiven you. This is the ministry of John that's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the people of God for the Son of God. Now, John is preaching this message of repentance, that you're a sinner and you need to turn from your sin and turn to God in order to receive forgiveness of God. John is preaching that message in the wilderness to the Jews. Here's what that means. He's preaching that message to people who already think they're in, but they're not. Because the kingdom of God is not an issue of birth. The kingdom of God is an issue of faith and repentance. And this is a strange dude, John the Baptist. And this is a message 
that hasn't been heard. And this is a practice that hasn't been seen. 400 years God's been silent. And here's John the Baptist in the wilderness, dressed weird, eating weird, proclaiming a weird message, and everybody's coming out to see him. I mean, he has garnered a huge following. If there were podcasts in John's day, he would be the most downloaded. If there was YouTube, he'd have more followers than anybody else. Everybody's coming to hear John. Verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan and they're confessing their sins. You know what this is? It's called revival. I mean, they're coming and they're confessing and they're repenting. They're being forgiven. They're being baptized. And the low places are being made high and the high places are being made low. The path is being made straight. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Because I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John was promised in the Old Testament. And he was preparing the way. And he was proclaiming in the wilderness a message of repentance, forgiveness. And he garnered a huge following. But in the end, John was nothing more than a pointer. Pointing to the one that would come after him. Pointing to the one that was greater than him. John understood he wasn't a big deal. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Because this is a man who had Old Testament prophecy written about him. This is the man that's breaking 400 years of silence from God. This is a man that is drawing huge crowds. Who's the, not, not just the talk of the town. But he's the talk of the whole region. Yet, he was just a pointer. John records, John 3 verse 30, John the Baptist saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. John knew he was not a big deal, at least compared to Jesus. His life and his ministry as important as it was prophesied in the Old Testament, he still understood Jesus is greater. So how do we take these verses 
in Mark that talk about this guy in the, ba- in, the, in the wilderness proclaiming repentance, forgiveness, and baptism. How do we take it and how do we apply it? Well, first is we hear his message of repentance. And if you've not repented from your sins, repent. Turn from your sins, your own selfishness, and turn to God and find in him forgiveness. And then follow that with baptism. But we also see modeled in John the Baptist that you are not a big deal. And I'm not a big deal. Right? If John the Baptist prophesied in the Old Testament, the, the way maker, the promised one, if he's not a big deal, I got a newsflash church, none of us are a big deal. You're not a big deal. I'm not a big deal. This life is not about you. It's not. You are not the one which the world revolves around. Jesus is. He's the one that stands at the center of all things. That's why we're called Christ Central Church. He stands at the center. You're not a big deal. You're not most important. Where you live is not most important. Where you, what you drive is not most important. How your kids behave is not most important. The job you have is not most important. The fact that everybody knows you and sees you and hears you and likes you and loves you and wants to be around you and your little kingdom that you're building, that is not most important. Our lives are simply to be lived as pointers to the one who is most important. That's what you see in John the Baptist. He understood he wasn't the point, just the pointer. And church, we got to get this. We are not the point. We are not the point. As great as we may be, there is one of whom we are not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Can you imagine you traveling all that distance to go and to hear John the Baptist preach and you hear him say, hey, there's one coming after me even greater than me. I'm not even worthy to, 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 to stoop down and untie his sandals. I mean, that's, the, that's the worst job there is. I'm not even worthy to do that. Now, why would John say this? He tells us because the greatness of Jesus was made evident in the fact that, verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That there's a great big difference between John and Jesus. John's baptizing you with water. Guess what? Anybody can baptize anybody with water. Anybody can. But there is only one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Just one. And his name is Jesus. 
What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that, that John talks about? There's lots of discussion as to what that may be. And is that, is that, does that come subsequent to salvation? So you're saved and then later on in life at some point you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you know you're baptized in the Holy Spirit when you speak in tongues. That's not at all what the Bible means. That certainly is not what John the Baptist means. What John is talking about here when he says, there is one who's coming after me that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about is, there's one who's coming after me that commands the presence of God because he is God. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's one coming after me who has the authority to send the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside of you. And that's greater than any water baptism. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one that can do that. And that's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. He's preaching to Jews, and I wish I had time to talk about it. The, the number one thing in a Jew's life, what they're looking for, it's the presence of God. That's why they're going to the temple. That's the whole story of the Old Testament, that, that God is with them, and he's manifesting himself in these different ways. And they're traveling. Guess what they're traveling? Guess what they're following? They're following the presence of, of God. Where is God going? Where is God leading us? We're following the presence of God. It's all about the presence of God. And John is saying, there's one who comes after me, greater than me, because he commands the presence of God, and he can make it come in you. And he's greater. He's greater. And so John was just pointing to the greater one, Jesus Christ. So here's the question for us, church. Are we living for the greater one? Are we living for Jesus? We weren't promised. And we aren't preparing. But we certainly have to be proclaiming and pointing. Are you using your life? Are you using your passions, your time, your resources to build your kingdom and your name and your comfort? And your renown? Or are you living, using your life, your passions, your time, your resources to build a life that points to Him? Are you building a life where you're at the center? Or are you building a life where Jesus is at the center? That's what we see in John. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.